When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ahí va a llegar el gol del Arsenal Ophil. Marca Mesut Ophil. Hello and welcome to another Arsecast Extra, as always with James from Gunnerblog. James, good morning to you. Good morning. How you doing? I'm all right. Got coffee. Just had a Kit Kat. I think I'm fine. Great. Mm. Coffee, but no cough. Thankfully. Thankfully. What about you? Yes, all fine. Thank you. Um, It's my wife's birthday today. So happy birthday, Camille. Happy birthday, Uh, Camille. A lockdown birthday. Got enough birthdays? I know. Well, I think she has probably had enough birthdays. <laughs> we'll see. Just don't know how happy she is about it being her birthday. But, yeah, so, and it's a bank holiday. Yeah. Again, I mean, it's difficult to differentiate these days, though, isn't it? I mean, it all just feels very similar at this point. It is. It is. Bank holidays mean nothing anymore. There are no such things as bank Every day is a bank holiday, kind of. Apart from the, yeah. you know, the holiday bit, um, probably the bank bit, you know. Well, actually, what's been, I suppose, a bit unusual for you and I is that there hasn't been... There's normally football on Easter weekend, right? Loads of mm. it. So it's it's certainly not a bank holiday for us, usually. So, yeah, um, I guess it's been a bit more like a holiday than normal. A tiny bit, except a holiday where you can't leave your house. That's, that's not really much of a holiday. Sure. It's sort of, you know, house arrest. Kind of, you know, in in a very light way. It's like we're very posh criminals, isn't it? We're like very, (laughs) very sort of well-to-do criminals who can't be put into a high security, into a proper prison because we'll get beaten up. Yeah. Now you, you stay at home. Do you promise? I promise. I will. Mm. I will. I will. I'll stay at home for the most part. People are out though. It was a lovely weekend here. People were out and about, you know, it was Easter. The supermarkets were crazy. Um... But I don't have any interesting or fun anecdotes about anything because nothing has happened. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, people were more out and about this weekend here too. I was, you know, flashing judgmental looks in every direction and mm. I felt they were breaching regulation. You look like you're on your second walk, mate. You've got a yeah. little spring in your step. Hang on you a minute. Be I'm, careful. I'm calling the cops. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a direct line set up. You know, I guarantee it won't be too far or too long before that kind of thing starts happening. Because you know the way, you know the way there are are Twitter snitches. Mm. So, you know, if you were to say, to put out a tweet saying, um, Phil Collins, God, I hate that guy's music, whatever. Mm. Mm. Somebody will like tag Phil Collins in on the tweet and say, look, what about this Phil Collins? 
Those people, oh, yeah. they're terrible people, obviously, um, because I don't know why they feel compelled to do that. Like if you were, no. if you were minded to like tell Phil Collins personally on Twitter, you could just copy him in yourself. Or you're just making an observation. Um, and those people, you know, I again, I, I go back to this, uh, perhaps sounding draconian. They should be in jail every time they do that. They should be put in jail. But I'm, you know, I'm sure that um, that. In time, people will will start snitching on the people who are, you know, apparently or reportedly or or uh, maybe breaking the regulations about going on their second walk or social isolation and things like that. But fear not, we can snitch on the snitches, and thus the circle of snitching will be complete. There'll be a snitch app, won't there? There'll be an app for snitching. Just yeah. put in your neighbours. Have your neighbours had people over at the weekend? Where are those people coming from? I know, I know. Well, the thing is, you know, I, I've got to be careful because I live in Islington, a lot of Arsenal fans around here. Mm. Sometimes I get spotted, sometimes I get recognised. So I can't I can't risk breaking any regulations, even if I wanted to. Have you got restrictions on how far you can go from home? Are there... Uh, I don't think there are explicitly. I think we're only supposed to leave the house for an hour's worth of exercise. So for me, there's a big restriction on how far I could physically get in an hour. Yeah, like about got, 400 yards. Yeah, because you've got to get like a half an hour there, half an hour back. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not fast. You could be slower on the way back too, you know, when you run out of energy and stuff. But what happens if the hour runs out and you're not home? You just... Turn into a pumpkin. You, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you turn into a pumpkin on the streets of Islington. Yeah, just to uh, wash with. Are you, have you got a, restric- a geographic restriction? Yes, two kilometres, unless you're sort of caring for a family member or you're doing shopping or whatever that might be. But you know, for for your exercise, for your daily exercise, which you're allowed out to do, obviously, you you you're not supposed to go more than two kilometres. So. Um, you know, places you might go with the dogs, like the Phoenix Park, is a little more than two kilometers from my house. Not much more, but still, you're outside the, you're outside the rules. Um, and I don't know that the two kilometer restriction, um, you can breach that because you need to exercise dogs. I don't think that's the case because you know, mm. dogs, um, dogs don't get coronavirus. So. That's good. I mean, I'd hate to have to snitch on you. Dogs don't get it, but tigers do, apparently. Did you see that? I saw week? that, that a tiger got it, but I'm not sure how real that was. And how the fuck did a tiger get a test? I mean, I who, who went in there with the Q-tip to, like, stick it up a tiger's nose and then take it to a... Like, I'm not sure I believe that. We can't get a test in this country for love nor money, but the ti- tigers, somehow they've got one. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think there's probably, you know, a tiger lobby out there right now trying to keep tigers in the news, you know, for Netflix documentaries and what have you. I and there was a thing... There was a thing on um, the news here, and this is terrible misinformation spreading by me because it's sort of one of those things where I've seen the headline and not properly read the story. Um, but it was a warning about cats carrying coronavirus, not because they uh, actually have it or are carrying it in that sense, but that because it could live on their coats in some fashion. Oh, I mean, I guess that's plausible with any animal, though, isn't it? If you pet mm. the animal, let's say you've got a cat and you pet your cat and you've got coronavirus because you just put your hand to your mouth because someone else has given it to you, and then you pet your cat and then your cat goes next door over the fence and into next door's house, um, as our cats used to do, um, 
they used to get breakfast and then they go next door and get second breakfast from the neighbours. Um, well, then yeah, here you go. Yeah, veterinary scientists. This is BBC News, so it's sort of, you know, fairly reputable outlet. Veterinary scientists have recommended cat owners keep their pets indoors to help prevent the spread of the coronavirus among animals. But don't worry, it's quite unlikely you can catch it off a cat. Right. So I don't really know what the worry is there. Well, look, you know, we're all just discovering things about ourselves and the world and the way it operates um, in, in this uh, in this time. So who knows? By this time next week, you know, magpies could have coronavirus. They could be a vector. They could be a, a super spreader of the coronavirus. I've long suspected they're involved. Would you I'll put it past them? No way. No chance. No way. So what about some actual Arsenal news, kind of? Come on, let's do it then. Let's do it. Um yeah. I mean, I presume, you I presume you're talking about Unai Emery. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Poor old Unai. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, I don't, you know, I don't, uh, I'm no great lover of the publication in question or, mm. or of people's personal lives being. Exactly. The kiss and tell thing is not great at all, but. No. But um, it was kind of entertaining in its own way. For people who don't know, uh, Unai Emery's former girlfriend told one of the least reputable um, newspapers out there, you know, probably the least reputable newspaper out there, uh, you know the one I'm talking about, that that he declared her a white witch and he mm. had, uh, she had brought him a lots of bad luck um, and that's why he got the sack from Arsenal. Turns uh, out it was all her fault all along. Mm. Um, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Something happened. I mean, <laughs> but no. It, do you know what it did make me think? Actually, and this is something that, um, as much as I'm sort of not particularly interested in the personal lives of footballers or people in football, and I think they should be left to get on with it privately. Mm-hmm. When someone is under enormous strain and under enormous pressure on a professional level, sometimes I forget certainly that there might be other factors contributing to that too. You know, yeah. that they have a life outside of football that might be, I don't know, impeding them or, or, or adding to their levels of stress, you know? Yeah, that's true. That is true. And I think it's, um, I do remember, um, you know, people react differently to, to pressures of normal life. I remember, do you remember when the the Jonathan Woodgate, Lee Bowyer thing happened? Yeah. And they were yeah. accused of that racially aggravated assault. Um, mm. And I remember Woodgate, all of it got on top of him. He wasn't well able to cope, but Bowyer played some amazing football during that period because the, uh, you know, the football pitch was the, the way that he could forget it, I guess, or, or yeah. become distracted from it. So, yeah, I mean, there are, you know, elements of, of normal life that we see footballers as people who, just because they get paid a lot of money, and that's obviously something we're going to talk about today, should be immune from, you know, feeling down or feeling blue or feeling under pressure because of things that are happening, you know, at home or at work or whatever it might be. Um, you know, the the idea that these kind of footballing robots, um, you know, is, is quite prevalent. And, and uh, yeah, maybe it's the kind of industry football is as well. You know, the way you're not supposed to show any weakness. You're not supposed to be anything yeah. but, you know, a man. Be a man. Man up. Do your manly best. Mm. You know, what kind of, you know, that kind of attitude towards things. Um, you know, there's a wide variety of people and personalities in football you know, as we're, as we're, I guess, more aware now. Yes, absolutely. But yeah, I did, 
I did catch that story over the weekend, and yeah, I mean, it obviously raised an, an eyebrow. But mm. the wages story is is the one I was actually uh, re- you know referring to. Right. So, um, do you want to just sort of give a quick recap of this because you wrote a piece for the Athletic along with uh, Amy and David Ornstein, outlining some of the the uh, proposals by the club for the players to take wage cuts. So maybe you could just sort of lay it out there and then we can talk about the the dynamics of it or, or the various aspects of it and the players' response. Yeah, so uh, as far as I understand it, the club have approached the players pretty much uh, directly with this offer, proposal, should we say, and it's for a 12, 12.5% reduction in players' compensation, so effectively wages and bonuses, uh, which will be deducted every month for 12 months from April to next March. Now, there is a kind of performance-related element here because if Arsenal qualify for the Champions League in next season, 2021, uh, that reduction will be returned in full to the players. Right. So not the Champions League... This season. Exactly. Not the one in which we're ninth. not going to qualify for the Champions League. Yes. The next season, which clearly the club expects to take place in something like full fashion or certainly something where mm. European qualification is available. If they if they make the Champions League, uh, they will not lose any money. If okay. they fail to qualify for the Champions League, but they qualify for the Europa League, the 12.5% will be reduced to 7.5% of earnings. Uh, If Arsenal fail to qualify for Europe in any fashion in the next season, it will be a definitive pay cut of 12.5% and the players will not get anything in return. Mm. So that is, in essence, the proposal. It, It is caveated with, you know, if the current season, 2019-20, doesn't finish or the club doesn't receive the expected payments from broadcasters, this will all be moot, essentially, because Mm. Arsenal will need to revise the situation at that point. So that is the club's proposal. Uh, And the players' preference, it would seem, is for not a cut, but a deferral. Right. Um, So they would rather not... um, forgo wages entirely at this point. They would rather, uh, you know, put them aside and receive them at a later date, have some sort of guarantee in place for that. Okay. What what do we know about what the the negotiation or or lines of communication between the club and the players is at this moment in time. Hector Bellerin is the the player's representative, the PFA representative. Every club has one. And I think, you know, it's it's worth pointing out at this point, isn't it, that that the PFA, I think, have suggested to players that they reject the idea of pay cuts right now. Correct. They are in part acting on PFA advice. When you ask what what is the line of uh, communication, I mean, Hector Bellerin is that line of communication. So... This message, we believe, was received by him and relayed to the players who then respond to him and he, in turn, will relay that back to the club. Right. So it's quite a big responsibility, really, for a guy who's not the 
club captain, but clearly, you know, he has been in this role for some time and has the respect of this club and mm. of the squad. And, you know, when you look at the squad, you'd think, well, yeah, he's he's a good person to be in that position. Really. Sure. OK, so uh, this this uh, story ha- emerged over the weekend or the details mm. of this proposal over the weekend. What is your understanding of how that information came to light? Um, well, a, a lot of people had this information, mm. right? So, you know, stories appeared kind of simultaneously across a lot of different publications. Almost uh, as if there had been a kind of briefing? <laughs> well, uh, yes, but I would say that's possible. But it, I would say it's not necessarily in the club's interests uh for this information to be out there i think that i think that there are people on the playing staff who feel a little bit aggrieved potentially about how this is um how the club are going about this okay so so you suspect that the the source of the information might have come from um the player side, and by that I don't specifically mean a player. It could be an agent or a manager or a representative mm. or something like mm. that. Um, well, well, I think I mean representative. I think uh, is an interesting one because clearly all these players do have representatives who would normally negotiate their financial terms. Yeah, but in this situation, that's obviously not the case. Well, right? why so, why is that not the case? Because you know. These are individual contracts. This is not a collective um, situation where, you know, mm-hmm. we're all doing the same job at the same company. We're more or less paid the same wage. You know, there is a vast range of wages here. So I would assume that although Hector Bellerin is the representative of the players, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of these negotiations and dealing with the PFA and taking the advice from the PFA on an individual basis, the players, their agents and managers, financial managers, you know, other representatives, whoever they might be, must certainly be involved in terms of the advice that they're giving to the players, what they're suggesting Absolutely. to them as to whether or not they should accept this or not. So, you know, this is not like a, a, a simple case of, right, Hector, you represent all of us. You go talk to the club. The club make a proposal. We make a counter proposal. There's a negotiation. And together we will find this collective agreement. You know, to me, it feels an awful lot more complicated than that. Yes. I, I think it's probably a little bit naive, um, maybe on the club's part, to think that... I mean, I don't know how realistically they think that this proposal would just kind of go through and pass with uh, without any problems. But, uh, of course, every player, and consequently every player's agent, is going to have a point of view on this, mm. right? And their job, in terms of the representatives, is to get the best deal for their clients. So it makes a certain degree of sense as to why the club would seek to circumnavigate that. But I think the chances of that happening are pretty... Of that working, should we say, of are course, pretty slim. Of course. Um, you know, and there are other, you know, 12.5% to, um, you know, Mesut Ozil is very different from 12.5% for Joe Willock, for example. You know, of course, there are individual issues, individual uh, circumstances, as, as we've said on the podcast before. Um, players may already feel that because they're not getting performance-related bonuses or, or things that are built into their contract right now, you know, on a, on a 
uh, when things are normal, you know, appearance money, goal bonus, win bonus, assist bonus, clean sheet bonuses, you know, so-called loyalty bonuses where a player gets paid a, a certain amount of money just because they, you know, play games for the club that they're contracted to play for, you know, mm. th- these loyalty bonuses, all of those things that are built into their contracts, they're not getting those anymore because, well, games aren't being played, obviously. So, um, yeah. you know... It, it- Go on. Sorry, just to jump cut across, I, I, I was just sort of about to say that I do fear, fear is maybe not the right word, but I do suspect that where this may end up is in individual negotiations. You know, I mean, if you look at the way football tried to handle this problem, in the first instance, they tried to agree a sort of Premier League-wide uh, amount mm. for cuts or deferrals. Then it was kind of deferred to... Uh, with an, a by club basis, if clubs uh, are unable to find an agreement that works for the whole squad, mm-hmm. then the, then you will be in a position where you will be negotiating with individuals, and that will be very lengthy and difficult, uh, and may take quite a long time. Of course, just in pure pure practicality. Yeah, yeah. Like I don't really know why or how it could be any different because you are dealing with you know let's say the first team squad twenty five individual contracts you know players earning a, a, a range of salaries um, you know there are other considerations you know personal circumstances all of those things to take into account on an individual basis that you can't you can't look at these and say right well we've got to do this across the board and it's simple as that you know in an ideal world maybe you could do that but you know being realistic about it how could that be the case you know and uh, mm-hmm. i thought there was an interesting line in the in the piece that that you were involved in um it says Mikel Arteta's squad are, are set to reject uh, the club's proposal to collectively take a pay cut for a year, but are open to deferring their wages if assurances can be given that 100% of the jobs at the club will be protected. Mm. Mm. So to me, that speaks to maybe a consideration for, for other people at the club and, and uh, you know, the other um, departments and, and jobs and salaries that that need to be paid. And I think, you know, at, at the moment, right, it looks to me or people will say, this is a bad look for the players. It, this, is, a, I, I mean, it is a bad look, isn't it? It uh, is a bad look. first glance, yeah. it's definitely a bad look. It is because people say footballers earn a lot of money. Why aren't they doing something? Why aren't they doing more? Why aren't they, you know, uh, this, that, and the other? And I get it. I mean, on, on a surface level, I absolutely understand that. But I think once you get into the complexities of it, you can understand why, um, you know, they might be uh, looking to go at this in, in a slightly different way or at least um, get some assurances from the ownership who, let's face it, would be quite happy to cut money across the board, whether it's first team players or anywhere else, um, if they could. So I, 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 you know, I'm not saying that the players are are somehow, you know, these um, old fashioned union men standing firm to protect the interests of everybody at the club. But, you know, if they want an assurance that if they take a pay cut or take a, a wage deferral, it will mean that all the rest of the jobs at the club will be protected. That's not a bad stance to take. Mm. Well, I think clearly if you're going to be asked to do that, you're going to want a certain degree of assurance, aren't you, about how that how that resource will be reallocated, mm. you know, what this means for everybody else. I mean, it is tricky because, you know, 
they probably, I mean, I'm generalising here, but probably those players, a 12% pay cut is not, is not uh, something they're not going to survive. You know, in, in the broader context of life, a lot of people are taking mm. pay cuts, right? Sure. And they're, they're doing that, you know, for a sort of collective good. So I, I do think that, you know, it would be different if I felt the players simply weren't prepared to do it. I think they absolutely are. They just want it to be on the right mm. terms. Yeah. Um, I mean, look, uh, the wage bill at the moment at the club, um, where is it? I was looking at, uh, where is it? Swiss Ramble. Uh, one second. Wage bill, um, 232 million is the wage mm. bill, but that's the wage bill for the entire club, right? Mm. That's not just the first team staff. As far as I'm mm. aware, when the wage bill is reported, it's the wages of, of everybody at the club, not just the playing staff. Um, sure. If you take, well, they, they obviously they're the, the vast majority of that. You know. Yeah. Well, I mean, there. yeah, a, a very significant portion of it. Yeah. So we're looking at you know, let's say a twelve percent pay cut by. Let's imagine that that two hundred and thirty-two million is just the players' wages mm-hmm. for a second. So you're asking um, the players. Uh, let's say what's twelve percent of two hundred and thirty-two million? Ten percent is twenty-three odd million, twenty-five million, twenty-eight million, something like that. Um, yeah. Right. So that's twenty-eight million pounds saved on wages if you get that twelve and a half percent pay cut through, and that is on the assumption that all that two hundred and thirty-two million is just the players' wages. Um, I, I'm, you know, as I wrote in the blog today, I'm a little bit cynical about the idea that. Um, players are being put in the spotlight again and again and again without people looking higher up. And people mm. have cited examples at other clubs where you know players have taken pay cuts, significant pay cuts, etc. Some of those clubs are not owned by billionaires. They're owned by fans. Mm. You know, um, the, 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 the situation is not the same. And Arsenal have, you know, a billionaire owner worth an, uh, you know, an obscene amount of money. Um, so I can understand players being a little bit reluctant to be the first ones to take a cut um, without assurances about, you know, other jobs at the football club and everything else, um, without there being some spotlight uh, shined, shone, shun, you know, on high, you know? Yeah. So I... I, I I think they, from what I'm, from what I'm understanding of this and from what they're saying, and, and I think it's really fair to point out that we have not heard from the players yet. We've, we've, we've heard this Arsenal proposal. Um, we haven't heard specifically from the players about why it is, you know, um, they're not accepting this beyond PFA advice and, and other things, but it strikes me that there's a wariness about, the implications of it, not just for them, but for other people at the club, and and uh, uh, and that's based on the way that the ownership have behaved. Yeah, and I think you know that the players aren't uh, naive. They're probably aware that the wage bill is a subject the club have been looking to address. Right and mm. now, in fairness to the club, what I would say is there is a performance-related element to this, and if Arsenal qualify for the Champions League in 2021, you know, none of those players Mm. take wage cuts, presumably because the club knows that their revenue would increase significantly with that. Um, 
I suppose from the players' point of view, they would say, well, actually, a, a lot of those players are on contracts which automatically go up or down depending on whether the club make Champions League or not anyway. Yeah. Ready. Also, you know, are, are you, uh, as the owners of the football club, going to invest in the squad, in the team, to make it sufficiently competitive to make Champions League qualification realistic? You know, mm. there, there's that side of it as well. Yeah, very true. Very true. I mean, if you're, let's say you're Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, right? Let's take that example. And you're you're on what you're on and you are told you're going to lose a substantial amount of money as a cut. And, and maybe you're thinking, well, you know, are, are the club going to support the push for Champions League qualification with the, with the requisite purchases and yeah, investment? Like, are they going to get us a defence? Yeah, for Something example. like that, you know, some small minor part of, you know, being a good football team. Are they going to, um, you know, provide us with the, the players that we need and require to make that step up mm. and that improvement? So, you know, that's another that's another factor. It's all well and good saying, well, look, here's a performance related bonus or here's a here's a motivating factor for you. You won't lose a penny if you qualify for for the Champions League. But, you know, it's like telling me, here's 100 grand if you can run the 200 metres in, in 20 seconds. You know, mm. not going to yeah. happen. Yeah, you won't lose any money if you make us a load of money. It's basically the yeah. the pitch. But, I mean, it is tricky because I do think uh, there are really two sides to this. You know, it, 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 the players must be aware that not accepting this at the drop of a hat you know, is a bad look. Do you know what I mean? They must know, well, this mm. isn't great PR. And I think, consequently, they must be given this pretty serious thought and have quite clear uh, reasons for doing it. You know, yeah. I, don't, I don't think footballers are so detached from reality that they just think, oh, yeah, this will, this will look fine. Yeah, no fuck care. it. Like, who gives a shit? You know, I, I completely agree with you there. Yeah, the, the- A lot of people will have read that headline yesterday and sort of thought, that's terrible on the part of the players. Yeah. I do think. No, I agree. Um, And I've seen some reaction to it online. And and look, I I get it as well, because on the face of it, when you look at it, it, it's like, oh, come on, guys, there's only 12%. But, you know, the, 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 the complicated manner of the negotiations, you know, and, and everything else involved in this means that, uh, yeah, I think you're right. I think they do know. They've got to be aware of how it's going to look. I think it would be, uh, you know, they must know there's going to be some backlash. Again, I think we need to get as much information as we can on this before we we make a definitive judgment on how they behaved. But I think it's also reasonable, regardless of how well you're paid, to protect your own interests when you're an employee of a club owned by a billionaire. And if you're if sort of on the side of that, you're looking after the interests of some of the other people who work at the club, because I think the article, you know, says that the players are open to uh, deferring their wages, but also donating uh, a week's wages to pay the salaries of of non-playing staff. Like yeah, it, that was a, a separate proposal that's yeah. been made by the club to donate a week's wages to pay that's lovely, uh, non-football isn't it? staff. And, that, and as far as we know, the players are relatively on board with that. Okay, you know, so they, think, yeah. Yeah. But then, you know, why are players being asked to donate a week's wages when Stan Kroenke could pay those wages without even a blink of an eye? You know, I'm, I, yeah. I get it. It's good. It's nice for the players to do that. 
But again, it's putting things on them, I think, that, that um, I don't know, it just seems like they're an easy target. And I think this, this, is a, this is a complicated situation. And I think if they're taking the time to do it um, properly and to think about it properly and to think about the implications of it, not just for them, then I think that's all right. But I, I, I would be interested to hear what they have to say and if there's going to be some kind of a communication from them because the immediate reaction is, well, the players are just greedy bastards and that's the end of it. And I don't believe that's the case, particularly with, with the group of players that we have who have, uh, in fairness, uh, demonstrated um, you know, an awareness and uh, a sort of conscience about what's going on at this moment in time in terms of what they're saying, what they're doing and everything else. It would just be remarkable to me that they're just like point blank, no, fuck it, fuck off. We're not taking a pay cut. There's, there's got to be more to it. Yes, and I think you know if you look at the broader context here, deferrals have been agreed at Premier League clubs who are in, rather than cuts, I mean deferrals, mm. who are in less financially strong positions than Arsenal, theoretically. You know, clubs mm. who are outside the top six, outside of European football. And so, you know, it's entirely plausible that Arsenal players would be looking at that and saying, well, you know, how come that's the situation for those guys and not for us? I mean, I think the real issue here is that, you know, as Josh Kroenke alluded to, or not alluded to, said directly, Arsenal are, uh, you know, a, a Europa League club on a, with a Champions League wage bill. But I mean whose fault is that mm. you know like who who's made who's made those decisions who has sanctioned those contracts you know the, the mismanagement financially of the wage bill is actually not the player's fault true uh, and and actually when i had a discussion with uh with kieran from swiss ramble a, a few weeks back on on the arsecast I sort of threw that quote out to him and he sort of not poo-pooed it, but but said it's actually not quite um, accurate because the clubs that are in the Champions League actually have a Champions League wage bill. What we have are a few players earning way, way too much based on what they're contributing. But in general, uh, you know, we're not there in terms of the wages that, that the other clubs are paying to their players. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's a nice soundbite, but it's not necessarily 100% accurate. No, absolutely. And uh, uh, yeah, it's it's a really, really interesting one. I, I hope... What do you think on the issue of cuts versus deferrals? Do you have sort of an, an instinctive feel about which of those is right? Um, I think probably a pay cut is the right way to go because... You know, let's be realistic about what's going on with the business, what's going on with the business mm. of football and, and businesses all over. I think that, you know, revenue streams have completely dried up. We saw Liverpool last week, didn't we? I think we were talking about it on the on the podcast last yeah. week before yeah. they roll back where, um, you know, they were going to furlough their staff. And then there was mm. such an outcry to it. They, they, they went back on it and they said, look, we made a, a mistake. Um, but what I thought was quite interesting about the 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 letter that the chairman was named Peter Moore um, put out was that he said okay we made a mistake here but you know please be a, basically we're saying look the finances are fucked our revenue streams are fucked we've got no money coming in whatsoever from all the usual sources and we've got all these expenditures and and wages to pay and bills to pay and all those kind of things um, you know if Liverpool are telling you that 
okay, we're going to go back on this, but basically uh, our financial situation is not really that strong. You know, that, that's got to be true of Arsenal. It's got to be true of lots of clubs. So I think, you know, instinctively, I would say that pay cuts are a way for um, businesses in general to survive trying times, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think it's... Uh, I think it's probably the right way to go. It's about how it's implemented, though, and what the implications are across the board. Because if they if they can cut the wages of, of playing staff, um, I think we have this idea in our head that, okay, well, the players have taken a pay cut, therefore uh, the wages of everybody else at the club are going to be protected. And I don't know that that's necessarily true. I certainly wouldn't have a great deal of faith that that was going to be true. So somehow, yeah. somehow this this reduction that the players take it funds everybody else. And players, as you say, can afford to take a pay cut. They, you know, they have a um, you know a, a lifestyle, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, to support. But at the end of the day, there are people working for Arsenal who are counting on their wages to pay their to pay their bills, to pay their mortgage, their mortgage to pay their yeah. childcare, to pay all of those things that regular day to day people have to pay in their jobs. Um, so I, I would I would worry that you know if they say well look we've got the players to take a pay cut we'll we'll just cut everyone else as well um, mm. like I don't trust the ownership of the club to behave or to to not do to everyone else what they are, want to do to the players and I think that that that's where this issue becomes quite complicated for me because it's not going to be just players. Yeah, I'd like to think that if I was a player, I would be open to the idea. Uh, of a cut, but I would want some assurances about what would happen to that money, mm. how it'd be used to pr- protect the jobs of other people who are paid less. And I think I would also probably want some demonstration from the club's billionaire owner that they were prepared to put their hand in their pocket as well. Mm. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think that would be a reasonable thing uh, to want as a player. And I and I suspect that if if those elements, you know, are met, uh, then, uh, then, then, then maybe we will see an agreement. I mean, I suppose the one good thing is, if it is Hector Bellerin leading these negotiations, we know he's very eloquent. We know he's a very good communicator. So perhaps it's not beyond the realms of fantasy to suggest we might hear something from the players' side because I think if you know he's very good at that side of things, at mm. the media side. So potentially, potentially we will hear something. It would be fascinating to know kind of where they where they stand, you know, officially. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And that's why I think before people go too crazy about, you know, greedy footballers and all that, let's wait and and hear what they have to say because it feels now that this thing is out in public, they kind of have to say something or they have to address it um, in a meaningful way. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you know, the, 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 the sort of... Um, the surface damage that this has done won't be repaired, you know? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, I think we will. Um, and I think, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, there are obviously, this is an issue that's going to be going on at, at other football clubs as well. It won't be just Arsenal. So, no, uh, yeah, it's a little bit unfortunate that, that uh, you know, our, our situation is being played out in public the way that it is. Mm-hmm. It feels like it probably would have been more beneficial for all this to happen behind closed doors and then some kind of an announcement on on. 
uh, an agreement would have been good. But you know, we we do things the Arsenal way. I mean, we've been the leaders. <laughs> this in, is very Arsenal. We, that's it for sure. is. It is, and we've been the leaders in in coronavirus related um, developments more than any other football club. They're wondering about you know should we f- shut football down for a bit? Bang! Our manager gets oh, coronavirus. Yeah, and that's it. You know, um, so you know we we've led the way here. So maybe we're doing maybe we're doing that again. By the way, a little mm. sort of uh, subject change there. There's a nice pivot on Mikel. He's been around and about doing a bit of press here and there. He was on Sky Sports News the other day. Mm. What an absolutely insane first year as a manager he is having. Well, yeah. <laughs> it, it is completely bonkers. The whole thing. Can you imagine? I mean, never in a million years could he have dreamt or in his worst nightmare what his, you know, what his kind of baptism in management might be like. I know. I Uh, mean... It's incredible. I don't think any manager has ever had so much to deal with in such a short space of time. And when you consider, you know, where Arsenal were when he took over, you know, even when you go back, do you remember the Man City game? Hmm. Um, it was sort of being rumoured, wasn't it, that, you know, he might move to us after the Man City game, that that, that had to get that fixture out of the way. The sort of surreal nature of him sitting on the Man City bench, looking at Arsenal being completely and utterly outclassed by Manchester City, a team devoid of spirit, commitment, energy, all of the things that, you know, he brought to the club as a player and things that he associated as a player, a style of football that was just, you know, it was horrendous. It was horrible. You know, Arsenal had fallen so far in real, real trouble heading towards the relegation zone. Remember, we were talking about Arsenal being in a relegation dogfight at that point. Yeah. So he yeah. comes in, he takes over, and and all of this stuff is happening. Um, it, it is completely and utterly bizarre, surreal, and if you were to sit down and write it in a script, it would be rejected because people would say, this is too far-fetched. Mm. Say, it is it is mad. Mad. It, it, it is mad. And also, I saw him speaking on Sky Sports News, and I thought the way he spoke about how he's trying to communicate with his players and, you know, the benefits of spending time with the family, like, he, he is conducting himself in a really classy manner mm. throughout the whole thing, and... You know, I, I I I sort of hope and suspect he will be a better manager for all this, but I do think that, yeah, I just can't believe what he's having to go through. And when football starts again, he he'll be like, oh my god, how how am I supposed to pick this up? You know, it was hard enough when I walked into the club. Now this is just yeah. I mean, that's uh, that's a good point, isn't it? Because you, when you think about it, and when you look at the way that that Arsenal had performed um, since he took over. Obviously, he stabilised things. We were struggling maybe to find the right balance, weren't we, from an attacking point of view and and everything else. Mm. But, you know, since he took over, what did we lose twice? Two games. We lost two games. Um, We'd been finding it difficult to to grind out the wins, but, you know, in uh, the last one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, I think we won, is that 
two, three, six, six of our last eight. And of course, the Olympiacos game was a clusterfuck. Um, not that it matters anymore because European <laughs> football is over for the foreseeable future. But, you know, we were beginning to sort of take little steps forward, little steps forward. And it's not quite going back to square one. But, you know, it is going to be a case that we're going to have to pick it up again. And, you know, let's say, imagine something crazy like in a month's time, they say football is going to begin again in a month. Mm. Or, you know, or football is ready to begin again. You still need to, it's almost like they're going to need a preseason to get going again. Because you can't just go, okay, tomorrow we start. It's not It's not going to be that simple, you know? Yeah. Depending on who you speak to, some clubs say, I have heard two weeks, Some most are saying three or four before they would mm. be ready to play. Um, and, and bear in mind, you might also be picking up a squad who might be slightly at loggerheads with the club, given mm. all this that's playing out in the media. Players who don't know where their future lies, you know, what's happening with the transfer window, what's happening with contract situations. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's... It's an absolute mess for anybody, but for someone who is, you know, so inexperienced and in their first job, it's, Mm. yeah, I I just have a huge amount of sympathy with Mikel Mm. for for what he is having to deal with in this first year in the job. Yeah. All right. Well, look, we'll leave it there for part one. We've got questions which we'll uh, address and some of those are related to this discussion. We will do that in part two right after this. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome back to the Arscast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter at Gunnerblog and at Arsblog. Also on the Arsblog Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash the Arsblog and on the Arsblog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an Arsblog member on Patreon. Um, just sort of following on from our discussion in part one, James, Gav, who's at 88Gav, uh, says... With reports of players being unhappy with pay cut proposals, or perhaps the way that those proposals were presented to them, 
Do you think it will affect contract negotiations with players such as Bukayo Saka and Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang? Well, I, I don't see how the club can enter sort of negotiations about a new contract in the current climate. Do you? No. I mean, it's very difficult to... to yeah, I mean, how could you? Because you don't know when football is going to begin again. You don't know when you're going to get money in again. You don't know mm. when you're going to start raising uh, revenue and all that kind of stuff. So right now, I don't know how that's possible. But could it possibly affect a player's decision-making? You know, if they feel, for example, that the way the club have asked them to take pay cuts or, or, or whatever it might be, if they feel aggrieved at that, and that is a sense that we're getting, isn't it? There's a sort of, you know, collectively they feel a little bit aggrieved about about the way this thing has been done. Yeah. Then it may well have an impact on a player's desire to stay or willingness to sign a new contract or or, or anything like that. Yeah, and I think it's, it. I think you're right to say the way it's been done. I I don't think it is the principle. Uh, you know, uh, of sacrificing some mm. amount of earnings to save other people's jobs. I know we've sort of reiterated that a couple of times, but I, I think it is the the manner in which it's uh, been undertaken that seems to have slightly irked uh, the playing staff. And I think, for, of course, it could have an impact. And I mean, I do I do find it very difficult to see how the club can sort of genuinely make a proposal to a player about a new contract until this is. Resolved, And we touched on sort of Liverpool and the furloughing of staff in part one. Mm. You know, I suspect Arsenal's decisions about what they're going to do, you know, with certain staff will depend on the outcome of these negotiations with the players. So, you know, there, there is so much that kind of rides on this, you know, and that rides on the TV revenue. I mean, the, the communication from the club to the players made it pretty clear that if Arsenal... Uh, don't get the TV revenue that they are due for for this season, the situation will be very grave. And I mean, I think that's a direct quote, very grave. You can't yeah. really say, see it plainer than that. Um, so so I do think that there is a possible knock-on effect if players are affronted by the way in which this has been handled. But more so than that, I fear that that they can't begin negotiations in earnest until there's greater clarity about the financial future of the club. Um, do you yeah. think maybe the players, you know, when they're being asked to do this by, by okay, look, executives are not necessarily as well paid as players unless you're, mm. you know, at Tottenham um, and the, the Daniel Levy gets paid more than most of the players. Sure. Um, but, you know... If they are to be asked to sacrifice something, slash set an example, slash, you know, do their bit for everyone, um, shouldn't everyone at that kind of level who's earning that kind of money also take a pay cut? I think so. You know, if you could ask, you know, Bukayo Saka on his three grand a week or whatever it is to... to lose 12.5%, then I think if you're a very well-paid executive, it's not unreasonable to think that you should sacrifice that 12.5% too. Mm. Um, I also think, you know, something we were just chatting during the break and something that came up was the sense that it's important to remember that players, many players are already helping in this crisis. I mean, I believe the Arsenal players 
pretty much collectively have joined the Football United fundraising mm-hmm. campaign. As well as that, there is the Arsenal Foundation, which uh, you know is in part funded by the players and, and other staff at Arsenal. And uh, as well as that, they have many individual charity endeavours that they do or don't publicise to different extents. Um, you know, I think footballers, not all footballers give something back, but plenty plenty do. Mm-hmm. And I think that just because we don't always hear about it doesn't mean it's not necessarily happening. Yeah, that's a fair point to make. Um, but yeah, it. I mean, what what this means for specifics of football, like contracts, transfers, it is almost impossible to say at this point I think mm. uh, I mean somebody somebody asked a question to that extent um, it was Andy Gillette actually who said hi guys hoping you and yours are all safe and well thanks Andy do you think player swaps instead of buying players when football resumes would be the best way forward until such time as the football economy recovers again you know I don't know I don't know. I just don't know what the transfer yeah. market is going to be. We had a question about like uh, here was uh, was from uh, at LT Arsenal, and it was like, would you be open to selling Lucas Torreira for thirty or thirty five million? Um, yes. And he, he asked that in the context of if it meant signing a more complete uh, base midfielder, I guess deep lying midfielder, in terms of being physically imposing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But you know. Now, if someone was to say, well, would you sell Lucas Torreira for 30, 35 million? That sounds like an extraordinarily high amount of money for a footballer, doesn't it? Even if, you know, it's not massive well, in terms of profit. Those wages. Yeah, exactly. That's what you'd make. <laughs> That's exactly. You just sell one player at a time. And, you know, um, but, you know, I just don't know what way. I mean, how do you, the, you still have to put a value on a player. It's okay saying, well, let's have player swaps and what have you. But, like, how do you decide, you know, I'll swap you one Lionel Messi for 26 Shkodran Mustafis. You know, I don't know how you... You still have to, to, to put a value on a, on a player. Um, and then it depends on whether or not that player is deemed as valuable by the club that you want to swap with. I mean, it seems like a much more complicated way to do things. I just think we're probably going to see a, a vast reduction in, in transfer fees as and when... Um, things get going again. I mean, I even saw some conscientious comments from Kia Jurabchian. Did you see those over the weekend? I know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Taken aback. You know? Um, uh, let me see if I can... To be find... fair, he's, at, he's probably done all right out of football so far, so <laughs> he can take it back. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. I mean, what, what did he say? Um... I can't remember. They were relatively It was basically along the lines of like, you know, how can we, if the ordinary man is struggling, blah, 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 you know, can the football club be seen to, you know, spend tens of millions of pounds on a footballer? I mean, I'm paraphrasing wildly here, but that was was the gist of it. To that effect, absolutely. And and I, I agree wholeheartedly. I do think transfer fees may become a thing of the past. I mean, you know, when most clubs look at a player, they assess their collective value. So it's the transfer fee amortised over however long the contract is plus the salary. Mm. And I think I think that the weight of the player's salary in all transfer decisions will be will be much greater. Mm. Almost, I think that I almost I almost think that there might be a thing where. Players with particularly big salaries, you know, slightly burdensome salaries, 
there will be real attempts made to offload them. And, and I think it will become problematic. But well, I mean, I mean look, you know, we... we Let's use Mesut Ozil as an example here, going into the final yeah. year of his contract on his 350 grand a week, you know, uh, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. You know, it was always a tiny handful of clubs who could afford to take on that kind of a contract. Mm. I don't know that there are, you know, one or two now who could do that apart from, you know, the PSG, the the Man City yeah. type clubs who, could, who could do it, you know? I just wonder if, given that the club are as keen as they are to save 12% of player salaries mm. across the board, might you see more situations where they agree to pay a certain extent of a player's wages? Do you know what I mean? In order yeah, to yeah, save yeah. more. Yeah. I don't know, but I think they'll be looking to make savings any way they can. Um, um, you know, if you, if you uh, I, I say this in inverted commas, if you got rid of Ozil's salary and Aubameyang's salary, there's your 12.5% at least, you know, in that. Mm-hmm. You know, Mkhitaryan's salary that we're still paying a fair chunk of, 200 grand a week. You know, mm-hmm. there, are, there are clearly ways in which you can reduce your wage bill, but um, it's just not going to be the same as it was before. Just yeah. impossible, I think. Yeah, it's it, it, yeah, it's going to change uh, dramatically, and you know it will be difficult. But I guess maybe maybe mm. football will operate as we've said before, sort of a little bit more in the real world um, as a consequence. Mm. Uh, is it my question <sighs> or your question? I'm not sure, actually. Uh, I think it's yours, Ted. Okay. Um, from Facebook, Aman Singh Kella says, mm. given the latest article from The Athletic saying we ignored our scouts in the purchases of Lucas Perez and Shkodra Mustafi and potentially others, is it mm. now time to stop blaming Wenger and put it squarely at the door of Ivan Gazidis and stat <laughs> DNA for our current I- weaknesses? Uh, do you know what, actually? I'm quite glad <laughs> to uh, have the opportunity to, to clear that up to an extent because... This is a reference to a piece I wrote about uh, Francis Kagagao, who, you know, is now the head of international scouting at the club's been on the scouting team for some time. And it mentioned those two transfers, Lucas Perez and Mustafi, as, as mm. ones that the scouting team were not convinced by and not proponents of. But the stats uh, the stats team did make a bit more of a case for, you know, that they, they did push slightly more for. But what's important to say is that that decision was still arsons. He, you know, mm. he, he saw scouting and stats as two valuable tools in the assessment of a player. And in those instances, he chose to, you know, go with the statistical advice. And uh, there are other criteria. So, for example, in Lucas Perez... Arsenal needed a striker and it was the end of the window and he had a release clause and it was a deal you could get done in two days and they pulled the trigger on it. Mm. And to a certain extent, it was the same with Mustafi. There was a price they knew that if they could, if they paid such and such a price, they'd get the player. And statistically, there was a sort of fairly good grounding for it. But ultimately, the responsibility, I think, in that situation has to lie with the decision maker. Mm. And the decision maker for his entire time at the club was arson. Um and you you know, you can query the stats that that proposed those players, but mm-hmm. I think 
I think the responsibility still has to lie ultimately with the the guy who the guy who pushes the button. Mm. As it were. Yeah, I mean he had uh, he had the say on who he brought in and who he didn't. Um, yeah, and, and, and you know I think that's an interesting thing about scouting, and I, I guess stats to an extent uh, is that they they make recommendations, but it's not their decision, and that means sometimes you know it'll work out well, and other times not, and that's kind of the job. I think what I think what is most interesting really is that there has been this kind of discordance between the two departments. And you know, Arsenal if you look at Arsenal's transfer policy over the last however many years, ten years almost, it's never felt particularly mm. joined up. Um and maybe that has played its part, a little bit of tension or, or, or you know, it's not necessarily a shared vision across across the whole of the recruitment department. Yeah, I mean, I think the recruitment department is probably a bit more defined now or certainly on paper mm. than it was. I mean, you think back and I think you referenced this in the article that you wrote, you know, the summer where we were basically about to sign Juan Mata. Mm-hmm. And... Um, my understanding of that, that there was a sort of a prevarication. I'm not quite sure at which end, whether it was to do with his valuation or, or whatever, but a sort of, um, yeah, things weren't all joined up there behind the scenes from an Arsenal yeah. point of view. He ended up at, uh, at Chelsea, even though I think there were stories um, that he was pretty much on the verge of signing for Arsenal. I think he was one of those whose, whose father was his agent, um, he is indeed. Yeah, yeah and represents him. Yeah, I remember doing stories about it or writing about it at, at that point. So you know, there were things about the way that we did our business that you know I think we're all well aware of, um, which had a yeah. big impact on the deals that we did. Yeah, and you know, the scouting. I mean, I talk about this in the in the piece, but the scouting department's recommendation that summer when we lost Seska Nazri was to was to get Juan Mata and Santi Cazorla mm. and Arsenal. For, for different reasons, didn't land either of those players then. Uh, Mata went to Chelsea, Cazorla uh, went to Malaga. Uh, fortunately, Malaga effectively went bust, so we were able to to get him a year or so later. But it's, it's you know, I mean, with all these players, you know, your Martinelli's or your Fabregas's, that, you know, I mean, Kagiao's record is, is excellent, but there are always hits and misses, you know, for any scout. For that's sure. sort of the game. It's like it's the transfer industry as a whole, isn't it? It's, you know, there is always a margin of error, but you're just hoping to kind of narrow that as much as possible. Mm. Um, but yeah, interesting times in terms of the recruitment department because, you know, we've seen Jason Rosenfeld uh, move on. And as we wrote in The Athletic at the time, there was a slight sense that maybe uh, from a stats perspective, they felt that they were not marginalised necessarily, but maybe less involved than they had been on on that front. Mm. Uh, and you wonder, given the way we are doing a lot of our business now with a kind of contact-driven, agent-led approach, whether the same could be true on the scouting side you know maybe that maybe there's a degree to which they're not being uh, consulted quite as much as they were mm. certainly under arson who had enormous faith and value and respect for you know the experienced eye when it came to spotting talent yeah 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 um speaking of martinelli have you seen the the clips of him doing his weights in the back garden and stuff <laughs> yeah yeah wow yeah. beefcake I know, I know. I mean, he's yeah, he's got a little goal in his garden. Have yeah. you seen these with like one of those uh, 
sheets across it with whole target practice yeah, yeah, yeah. in the top corners and stuff. And he's keeping himself, uh, he's, he's keeping himself busy. He's ripped now. You know, he's working on his physicality. Well, yeah. that's an aspect of his game that's going to develop, right? I mean, he's so young still. That's true. Between he is. Between 18 and yeah. 21, I think you would anticipate his his body changing a lot. And he, you know, I mean, who knows? He might go through that kind of Ronaldoization. you know? It's not improbable. Hopefully without as many bulging veins. Yeah, I mean, no one needs a neck quite that big. No. But no. Uh, he is an admirer of Ronaldo. Believe, mm, so. That's true. Yeah. We shall see. Um, right, let's have... Uh, I mean, we've sort of dealt with this. Dave on Twitter said, you'll probably address it on the podcast, but why is the focus on players when most clubs have billionaire owners? I think we've kind of said our piece on that. Kind of have, all right, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Pablo Eagle on Twitter said, do you think there's a danger that some fans will get used to this new normal without football? So when it eventually returns, the passionate bond between supporter and sport will have broken. Um, I'm supposing, I suppose I'm asking if you think it will ever go back to quite how it was. Um, I guess, you know, it, it, it will have an impact on some fans because... Yeah. They're probably going to be dealing with other things that are more important, you know. Mm. Um, it's easy to to grant football huge importance in your life when when everything's kind of going all right. And I, I don't mean to say that's the only reason why football is important. For some people, it can be, you know, an escape from you know, a life which isn't as great as they want it to be, but football provides that sort of escapism or, or that, you know, gives you that focus which helps you get through. But I think, you know, if you, the far side of this, are dealing with very serious things, whether that is loss of a job, loss of a business, loss of friends or family members, you know, I, I do think it will have an impact on on some people and their their willingness to devote the time and energy and money that it requires um, to to follow football in the way we did before. I think it's only normal when we when we try and project forward and think about what the world is going to be like when all of this is over uh, and the 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 consequences and the ripple effects that this will have. Mm. unquestionably you know I don't think we even understand 10% of what's coming down the line in terms of how people are going to be affected and, and the way that the world works um, it, it strikes me that it can't possibly just go back to being what it was because um, that means we haven't learned anything it means that um, the various ways in which uh, all the aspects of our life are impacted just haven't happened. And I think we're beginning to see that those things are, are, are having an effect right now. So, yeah, I, I think I think it is going to have a, an impact. Maybe some of it will be positive. Maybe some of it will be things that we can say, okay, we, we need to make that better. We need to improve that. We need to to be more conscientious. We need to, to understand that, that Football is a, a wonderful thing, but is it something we should use to squeeze every last penny out of every person who's you know loves football or loves the game or you know the sort of overkill we've had with football? Mm. Like the fact that there is essentially now no time in the year where there isn't football. You know the the 
the the season ends, there's internationals, there's preseason tournaments, the season begins again, there's international, you know, it just, it never ends. Maybe we need to, to think about that a little bit, but I, you know, I can't imagine that, that the game won't change and people's perception of the game won't change because of everything that, that we're going through right now. Yeah. And in terms of sort of, do I think that this will create a bit of a disconnect in the bond between you know, the club and the supporters. I don't think it will from sort of what I would term as like the hardcore support. You know, people who are real Arsenal fans, that's not going to go anywhere. But I think with the Premier League in particular, there is a kind of a fringe support. The idea of like a casual fan does exist, you mm. know. And I think that maybe it's very possible that that connection might be broken by the lack of contact, the lack of, uh, the lack of, uh, you know, sport fundamentally. But I think that what that means is that, you know, Arsenal, Arsenal do have, and very fortunate to have a huge faithful support. And what I hope is that when they come out of this crisis and realize that is still there for the most part, that they look after it. Mm. You know, and, and and take steps to protect it and make sure that the game and the club remain accessible to them in the new economic light landscape. Mm. Uh, is it my question? It is my question. Sort of along the similar lines. Why is Mark Lahr on the Discord says, I'm starting to really miss football now. Are you? On top of that, are there things you miss that you never thought you'd miss? Like Steve McManaman's voice, for example. <laughs> I I'm, don't I'm, I'm, miss I'm, that. I'm not missing that. I'm not missing that. Uh, am I missing football? I am missing I am missing the games and I have to say I don't really find the retro stuff particularly sort of satiates that for me you know like I don't find myself watching vintage match of the days or you know it, it, it's Euro 96 on YouTube yeah, sit down it, yeah like look I, I have fond memories of those occasions and I see the value in it but I, there's something about the excitement of live football that you cannot be. And I mean that in every respect, you know, you know, my other life, I've performed comedy and live comedy. There's a thrill about it. You know, people keep saying, mm. are you going to do an online gig? And I'm like, well, I think it would be horrible. Like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> no yeah, yeah, yeah. I can imagine. Yeah. No, you don't yeah. know what's working. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Like, that is, that is the beauty of football, isn't it? It's the live experience. We can all go back and relive things, but mm. it's not the same. It's not no. anything close to the same. And the drama of that and the spectacle of it. And I think even when we get football back, I think it's inevitable it will be behind closed doors. And I think even that, I think it will be exciting because it's new and it's happening now. And But I think it will still not feel like I want it to quite. So, yes, I do miss, I do miss football. I miss football matches, you know, because that's really what it's about. There's still plenty of chat about football, mm. but it's just not as engaging and not as fun. Do you do you miss football? Yeah. Yeah, I mean I miss the kind of structure it gives my life in a way. You know, when is the next match? And there's mm. there's so much of my entire life has revolved around football matches and football that yeah, I, I miss it and I miss the experience of of games and live games and the emotions and you know, I was I was beginning to enjoy it again. After a period, you know, under Unai Emery, where I, I really didn't, I found, I found Arsenal a chore. Watching that team, I found it very difficult to enjoy 
what we did and how we did it. I, I don't think I'm alone in that because of the you know the results and the football that we played and 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 everything else. They're, they're just I felt in some ways a little bit disconnected um, from the club and from the team, which which isn't to say I wasn't invested. Because of course I am. I'm a fan and a supporter, and I want the team to do well at all times. But you know, at the, at the same time, you can acknowledge that when your team is poor, you cannot enjoy it. And I was beginning to enjoy it again under Arteta. I was beginning to to sort of feel a little bit optimistic um, about where we were going and how we were going to get there. I enjoyed listening to Arteta speak and and to sort of outline the visions that he has for the club and the players and the team and what he wants it to be. And it, it, it resonated with me because I shared that. I shared sort of his his idea of how football should be played and what, what kind of football Arsenal should play. Mm. So having just got that back a bit and then for it to be taken away and, you know, I'm not criticizing that because we know it's the right decision to make. But yes, I'm I'm missing it. I'm missing the the games and the goals and the moments and the the the, the ups and the downs and the highs and the lows rather than a sort of continuous low not low, but I don't know how to describe it. Like Unai Emery was sort of like footballing tinnitus. It was just this mm. low level irritation all the time. And it went away. It was replaced by silence and maybe the beginnings of birdsong. <laughs> and now it's gone. So it's a very poetic idea. I uh yeah. Is there anything you miss that you're surprised that you miss? Um, in football terms, I guess. Uh, I don't think so because it's all just part of one big package, isn't it? You know, all the. Yeah, I mean, I suppose on that, on that, I miss, no, I, I miss say, uh, Lampard out hashtag. Well, that's it. I was going to say <laughs> if you if if you only brought back Arsenal games, that wouldn't be enough, really, to really satisfy you. The I Schadenfreude, think. yeah. Yeah, yeah. The other matches really matter too. The context and the the full picture, so that you can enjoy laughing at your rivals as much as celebrating your own team's achievements. Mm. Uh, I think that's a big thing. I miss, I miss Spurs stuffing stuff up. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you mean. And, and sort of slightly related to this, uh, Gunranjan on the Discord says, what is the most pointless football-related argument you've had with someone only to realise later that it was such a waste of time? I had an argument with a Man United fan about whether Danielson is better than Anderson. (laughs) The way the the careers of both those players turned out, it seems so futile. (laughs) God, that's great. I mean, yes. uh, Like, I can't think of one, but I, I just really like that. That, that concept, you know, this is part of what we miss. Is like, well, how, you know, how could you say this about this player? Because, blah, well, let me break out the stats and I'll argue with you about this, that, and the other. And There's someone go, on Twitter, Arsenal Twitter, and I forget which account it is, that basically thrives on just doing these. Like, they f- seem to find Man U fans saying oh, Rashford's better than Martinelli or something, and then they just take issue with it. Is it's it, become like a kind of subculture of Twitter. I think I know who that, I think I know who you're talking about. Out here, um, is it Dan Critchlow? Yeah, I think who writes it might for the be. Daily Canon? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. At they made a- it an yeah. art form almost. At AFCDW, and some Man United fan will say, well, Martinelli could never, whatever it might be, whatever the exactly. thing the kids say these days. And whatever just, Mason Greenwood has done. Yeah, exactly. Say. And then he comes out with a ream of stats and goes, well, actually, um, yeah, it's quite funny. Yeah, it's, But time-consuming, uh, I would say. <laughs> it is It is time-consuming. It's enjoyably patty, I would say. Uh, so, but, uh, yeah. Gunranjan, in about 12 years' time, uh, ask that question of Dan, and he'll yeah. be able to <laughs> give me about 500 examples. <laughs> exactly. Uh, let's have a look at this. Okay, Ivan Ho on the Facebook says, Recently, Lord Bentner... Our Lord and Saviour, Nicholas Bentner, has stated his wish to be a football coach when he retires. Mm. Um, Who do you think among the current players will be a good coach in the future? Okay, Uh, let me have a think about that. Who among staff? Um, Because, like, when Arteta was playing, you kind of had the sense, oh yeah, he'll he'll be involved in the game. Yeah, and Mertzaka to an extent too, albeit in in a different aspect of football he is involved now let's um, think who would be a good coach is that what the question was yeah I'm going to say that I think uh, Granite Shaka yeah. might go into coaching I was going to say he has that kind of personality that, that sort of strong belief in himself that you need mm. to be a coach or a manager um, big ego decent communicator um, swears a lot <laughs> Yeah, he, he he's one. I'm looking um, through the squad, and I'm thinking like, do I see Obama Yang? I mean, I, I you know, he's often the guy that's that's um, front and center for interviews and all that kind of stuff. You know, after games, and he, mm. he talks pretty well. But I do sort of have this vision of him when he's finished playing. You know, having a good time. Yeah, but then again, yes. it could be. I'm just trying to... I'm looking at the squad and I'm thinking, I don't know. I, I mean, Lacazette, maybe? I don't know. He's no. He's someone who's... You no. don't think so? Don't think so. Do you think there's a sort of like... Uh, uh, and Do you think there's a sort of de- a, a bias towards the defence? Often few people think of centre-halves as good coaches. Like, what about Socrates, David Luiz? David Luiz. I could see David Luiz becoming the manager of Brazil. I can kind of see Louise doing it. I, again, I have that slight sense to do with Aubameyang of like, he might just want to chill after his playing career. Just get a um, hammock. Yeah. I, in fact, I can see, I think David Louise would be a good number two. I think he'd be like a great coach to sort of be the connection between mm. the, the coaching staff and the playing squad. Um, I think I see him more as that maybe than the, the main man. He'll be assistant to Shaka in the (laughs) Arsenal management team in 15 years' time. Mm, Yeah, that's about it, though. I mean... I mean, it's less and less the case, I think, isn't it, in the modern game? I'm I'm thinking of people who've left Arsenal, like someone like Jack Wilshere, I think he'll definitely go into coaching. Uh, And he's spoken about it already, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe he's already got one eye on when he might have to retire, who knows, but... um, Maybe. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. It's it's hard to predict as well. You get surprises. You, you know, I don't think anyone would necessarily have said Freddie Umber. Yeah, but you know, when you go back uh, as well, and you 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 look in the past, and people will say, "Well, who's going to be who's going to be a manager? Who's going to be a coach?" And you'd say Tony Adams. You know, 
Tony Adams, because of the personality that True. he had, the way he was such an amazing leader uh, on the pitch, people thought, well, he is going to be he's going to be a great manager. And, you know, it hasn't really worked out for him in, in management terms. So, like you say, there are going to be surprises, people who you don't necessarily view as the, the, the guy who's going to do it. Nelson Vivas, for example, you know, is mm-hmm. a manager. I think he's now. the assistant at Atletico Madrid, I believe. Is that Really? Is that where he is now? Have I got that wrong? Nelson Vivas. It's a hell of a shout from me if it's true. I think you could have dreamt that, did you? Yeah, I think I dreamt that. Sorry, guys. Uh, Oh, no. What? 2018, according to Wikipedia, assistant at Atletico Madrid. Right. Uh, Learning is trade for the very best. Vivas served as Diego Simeone's assistant manager... At Estudiantes, River Plate, and San Lorenzo. Yeah, and May 2018, Atletico Madrid appoint Nelson Vivas to join Diego Simeone's backroom staff out of 2018-19. I'm not sure he's still there. I mean, this is absolutely an athletic article waiting to happen. But I, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, no, the, that's the, why I, the athletic article is is you going to uh, track down the fan that Nelson Vivas attacked when he was in the stands <laughs> that time and he's sort of shouting at him. That's that guy. The, the reason I do actually know about this is because they had been doing on Athletica 98-99 throwback. And, of course, Nelson Vivas was heavily involved in that mm. season uh, for mm. failing to pick up Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank mm. against Leeds in, in what remains one of the most painful Arsenal memories I have. So I think I'd done a bit of preemptive digging. So, yeah, that, that I mean, that could be very interesting if he is indeed working there alongside uh, Simeone. Mm. So yeah, he, he he got in a fight on the touchline, didn't he, when he was in South America? He I did. I was I was listening to the the podcast you did um, with L- Lauren. Yes, and he talked about Nelson Vivas mm. helping him, didn't he? <laughs> didn't he say? Yes, something but like? I think he meant as a Spanish speaker. But was were they at the club at the same time? Only just, I believe. So Lauren arrived in two. Thousand was it? Uh, Nelson Vivas was at Arsenal from oh ninety eight to two thousand and one, but he spent yeah, he the two thousand on loan to Celta Vigo, and uh, then arrived. Yeah, in two thousand. So maybe there was a bit of preseason. I think there was a brief overlap. Yeah, um, I can't remember who he said the other sort of Spanish speakers were who helped. He's Silvino. He talked about Silvino. Of course. Yeah. Uh, um, but Silvino, yeah, I mean, had Silvino, because he was a um, Portuguese speaker. But where did we... Yes. Yeah, because he came directly from Brazil to Arsenal. But, you know, maybe the similarity between Portuguese and Spanish Portuguese might have helped. Portuguese and Spanish speakers sometimes find some common ground. Yeah, mm. exactly. Uh, and I think as well, you talked about Robert, Robert Perez. They arrived at the same time, didn't they? There's that amazing picture of... Of yes. a young Robert Perez and a young Lauren. Um, and he speaks all the languages, Robert Perez, as far as I understand it. He does. He does. Also, the way, and I said this to you offline, yeah. <laughs> the way that Lauren says Martin Keown is outstanding. Outstanding. I could not figure out who he was talking about. I was going, who is Matty, Matty Q? Matty Q. Yeah, Matty yeah. Q. I was going, is that Matthew Upson? Was that a nickname from Matthew Upson? I had to sort of listen a few times. Yeah, it's great. Know. The accent is, is brilliant. It's a, it's a strong accent that he's mm. got. Good um, interview as well. Really enjoyed it. 
Really yeah, he's it. a great guy, isn't mm. he? I mean, you know, and actually I was thinking back to that team on the subject of coaches, you know, a, 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 a good chunk. It's interesting because when I seem to remember a lot of people saying at a certain point in Wenger's reign, oh, it's interesting that a lot of Fergie's players go on to coach, but a lot, not many of Arsene's necessarily do, mm. or certainly they don't within the club. But, you know, now I think when you look back at his teams, a lot of them have at least had a go, mm. if not you know, still doing it. I mean, from the Invincibles, we mentioned Freddie, but Sol Campbell, Patrick Vieira, Thierry, Thierry Henry, Dennis Burkamp's done his, some coaching in his time. Um, there's probably, Carlo Torre is, of course, an assistant, assistant yeah. at Leicester now. Uh, so, yeah, there are plenty there. Nelson Vivas, of course, you know, yeah. uh, from the 2000s. I guess it would be, I guess it would be, something you might feel inspired to do if you've got a coach who's actually inspirational or, or who you feel, yeah. you know, has really, um, who understands the game and has deepened your own understanding of the game, you know? Of course, yeah. I mean, it's something that came up in your chat with Sesk. If it, did it? I, I can't remember if it did. But I, if it didn't, I remember thinking, this guy's going to be a coach mm. at some point during the conversation. And, you know, when you think of the managers... No, you know, yeah, played, I did I did, I did say to him, yeah, we did talk about, you know, what happens next. And he sort of said, yeah, he's, he's just football definitely. obsessed. Yeah. Obsessed with football. And, he, and he's worked with Arsene, of course, but he's also worked with Guardiola, Conte, Mourinho. Ooh. Yeah, 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 I know. You can boo it, but it's a hell of an eclectic mix of coaching, you know? Sure is, sure is. plenty of trophies in there too. So, Mm. Cesc Fabregas, you know, as retiring and then becoming Mikel Arteta's sort of assistant and eventual heir is something I'm absolutely on board. (laughs) Uh, Another thing about that Lauren interview was like, I think you started with, what's your favourite Lauren moment? And uh, I think Amy went first. And I was almost sure she was going to say that tackle on Ronaldo. (laughs) <laughs> he oh, kicked yeah, him up in yeah, the air. Yeah. Now it was an equally excellent moment where you know he, he um, I think by implication, Amy was talking about the moment where he grabbed Phil Neville by the throat. Mm-hmm. But it was that whole the reaction to the the Vieira, the, the, the Old Trafford thing. Yeah, that was good. Grabbed Phil good. Neville by the throat. Wow. Yeah, there, when they build picture. the statue of Lauren, that's what it's going to be. Oh, my God. Wouldn't that be amazing? I mean, if you just Google that picture, I mean, have you ever seen anybody look more terrified than Phil Neville? What, no. I mean, what would be quite good is if they built that statue, but they didn't build the Phil Neville bit, because obviously who wants to see Phil Neville's face cast in bronze? And then you could go and have your picture being <gasps> strangled by Lauren. Like one of those where you put your head through and you've got a cowboy outfit on or a yeah. leprechaun outfit on or whatever it might be. You could be the one who's being strangled. And you make an your honour. Oh, my God. That'd be superb. Interactive. I mean, we're going to have to do something to get the people back to football and interested in football again. You know. You're absolutely right. Uh, I think that would be very cool. Mm. Uh, he was great I really I mean I've got to say we've been quite lucky as Arsenal fans we've had some really good right backs and when it comes to sort of pick a right back you know in your sort of best 11 it's really tough I think it is really tough it is we did have some um, best 11s and best five aside questions and stuff like that but uh, Mm. you know I think we've done too many of those or so many of those over the last little while that you know we need to we need to give them a break something else to do have you got any more or is that uh, I've got this one which I just thought was <laughs> quite funny Herbie Guna said are corners worse now than they used to be <laughs> what in terms back- of in terms of the the angles 
I don't know. I, no, I think it means the set piece. Am I looking back with rose-tinted specs on memories and recent highlight reels from the good old days? Just the art of the corner. But you only you only ever see the good corners when you watch highlights. That's it. That's it. You don't see it's all like the long-range that- shots. Yeah. Exactly. You only see the ones that fly into the top corner. You don't see the the previous 20 that, you know, go out for uh, throw-ins and corners and things like that. So um, are are corners worse than they used to be? No, I think they're probably better technically than they were because you've got, you know, you're not trying to kick the ball out of a divot, for example, uh, when you're Mm -hmm. taking a corner and everything else. Yeah. did you see, I think I retweeted it, there was a footage of a game between Arsenal and Liverpool from the maybe the 71 season, um, and the pitch is just astonishing. It's oh, just no, I haven't seen big, it. Let me have a quick look. It's on my timeline. Match of the day, February 1973, a typical 1970s pitch, a smash and grab by Arsenal at Anfield. Oh, my God. It's like the Somme. It's... <laughs> It is. It's like no man's land. The pitch is literally like no man's Bob land. Barbed wire, mines. Yeah, exactly. Men wandering around with limbs hanging off. I, I tell you what. I miss, is it just me or do footballers not get properly muddy anymore? Like no, properly muddy. They don't get muddy. You don't get muddy. Remember when you used to play football, you'd come back in, you'd have like, you'd just be, be caked with mud. Yeah. All one side of you. Um... But yeah, no, they don't get muddy anymore because they don't play on, on muddy pitches, even when it's lashing rain. And I, I have to say, like, I, I miss watching games like that sometimes. Like, I love when a team's got to go and play a cup tie and on a waterlogged pitch and, like, you know, the ball holds up. I mean, not all the time, but as a novelty, it's great value. I, I remember watching a Chelsea game against Tromso in some old version of the Europa League. Mm. Uh, or the Cup Winners' Cup or something like that. And it was a properly snowy pitch, you know, with like uh, orange ball. You could barely see what was going on. Yeah. Yeah, I love all that. And even in this Arsenal game that I'm watching now on your timeline from the 1973, and I'll have to confess, I don't actually know who scores this Arsenal goal where they kind of dribble from the halfway line. But the pitch is a factor in the goal. Like the pitch enables them to sort of like knock it ahead and mm. keep it under control by holding it up. I kind of think that's an interesting dynamic in football that, you know, it's kind of a shame in some ways that, you know, the modern football fan won't see, won't see all that. Cause it, yeah. is, it is interesting. It is. It does. It adds a different dynamic to it. You know, there's different dynamics yeah. to the, to the game uh, depending on the conditions and like, what's the worst you get nowadays? It's just a bit cold or it's a bit windy or it's a bit rainy or, or what have you, you know, the, the, I guess the playing field is quite level when it comes to playing surfaces these days. Everyone's got a great pitch. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be good if somebody had a fucking crater in one end or, you know, pitch sloped downhill or, you know, as the season went on, the goal mouths became just like that. There was never any grass in them or, or whatever it might be. So, yeah. Anyway, absolutely. anyway, maybe we'll get back there. Maybe things will fall apart to the point where pitches become terrible again and football becomes, you know, uh, uh, you get these moments which you don't expect simply because of the conditions that you're playing in. So who knows? Maybe. If we can hope for anything out of this crisis, it's muddy footballers. Muddy muddy footballers and muddy pitches. All right. Um, Okay. We'll leave it there. Thank you as ever for being with us. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the show. And um, yeah, we'll do more and catch you uh, on the next one. So until then, bye-bye.